Palace Perspective is brought to you by Palace Capital Advisors, a comprehensive wealth management firm with locations in the Northeast, specializing in financial and estate planning solutions, investment management strategies, and family office services for high net worth families across the country. Now, here's your host, James Landry. Welcome to the Palace Perspective, the podcast that brings you conversations and professional analysis on the topics and trends affecting your everyday financial life. I'm your host, James Landry, and I'm glad you chose to listen in today. Now, over the past two months, we've attended several client meetings where the focus of the conversation was dealing with the risk-reward considerations of the individual single security concentration. And as nearly always the case, the clients intuitively understood the risks inherent with their current investment strategy, but for various reasons, found it difficult to do anything about it. And we talked about some of those reasons last time. This topic may not be actually everyone's everyday financial life, but it certainly impacts a lot of families we work with on a regular basis. Today, we will cover part two of how to deal with the issues and concerns around concentrated stock positions. If you missed part one, I'd encourage you to listen to that August 2021 podcast as it deals with a number of practical planning strategies that investors should be aware of when handling a concentrated position. We'll talk to Mark Bogar, Chief Investment Officer of Palace Capital Advisors, If you're going to hedge, you have to give up something. And what you give up is the upside. And Charlie Evangelaco, CFO and partner here at Palace. Owning puts is a great way to protect downside. You know you're going to get a minimum amount of money for the stock that you own. That's the big advantage. Mark and Charlie, welcome back. Hey, James. Hey, James. So on our last podcast, Mark and Charlie, we covered, you know, many different strategies that an investor might consider. And I'll just list them really quickly here. Just for sake of time, we talked about, well, the basic strategy and necessarily the most common strategy for folks, and that's doing nothing. And so another one would be just biting the bullet and selling the shares, whether you do all versus some, putting a stop loss order in. We talked about the use of 10B51 plans, commonly used with employees or executives of publicly traded companies to avoid any allegation against insider trading. We talked about the use of exchange funds, not to be confused with a ubiquitous exchange traded fund, but the use of exchange funds where you exchange your concentrated position into a basket of securities and then receive back partnership interest. We talked about monetizing the position using securities back loans or margin. And then finally, we talked about donating the shares directly to charity, donating the shares to charitable trusts, donating the shares to donor advised funds or a private foundation all in exchange for a tax deduction, and in some cases, in the case of a charitable remainder trust, the ability to have that tax-exempt trust diversify out of the position without incurring to the donor at least an upfront income tax bill. So today, we're going to switch gears, and we're going to discuss strategies that involve hedging a concentrated position. Often, concentrated stockholders wish to retain the stock but also need to protect against the risk of a substantial drop in its value. And there are multiple ways to try to manage that risk by hedging, specifically by using options. So Mark, let's talk about hedging for a second. Now I hear in the media often about hedge funds, hedge fund investors, hedge fund managers, and most of the time it's not always in the best of light. When we talk about hedging though, what in general do we mean? Well, James, in general, the concept of hedging is to mitigate the downside. So Most investors are long markets in some fashion, and you'd like to have some kind of hedge. In this case, we're talking about concentrated positions. So the investor owns that position. And how do we mitigate the downside in that position? And there's multiple strategies that we'll talk about today. 
one type is options that then can limit the downside. Another can be diversification strategies that it doesn't take all the upside away or necessarily take all the downside away, but can diversify into other securities and you lose that concentration risk. But that's, those are a couple of types of things we think about when, when we talk about. So if hedging is a means of reducing or even potentially eliminating downside risk, or at least putting a floor on that risk, why wouldn't every investor hedge his or her positions? Well, the first and foremost is probably uh, potentially losing out on upside. So wow. typically, if you're going to hedge, you have to give up something. And what you give up is the upside. And a lot of times in a concentrated position, that's been a very, think about a stock, uh, a company, you know, family-owned business that may be converted to public, but still it has driven the wealth of that family. And so the odds are that wealth could continue to grow. And so you give up some of that upside uh, and also, and or... Uh, I should say, what would be the cost of that hedging? If you typical put option, you have to pay for that. So it's money out of your pocket that you're paying to hedge it. So those are a couple of things to think about when, why you wouldn't want to actually. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and before we go too much further, Mark and Charlie, I just want to caution our listening audience that the information on this podcast is general in nature. It's not specific to anyone's personal situation. You shouldn't, you know, rely upon it solely when making any investment decision. Options can also involve substantial risk. They're not suitable for all investors, not suitable for most investors. Prior to buying or selling an option, a person must receive a copy of the characteristics and risks of standardized options. And that document is available at uh, www.theocc.com. Well, that said, Charlie, let's talk about the most basic hedge. And that's purchasing a protective put option. First of all, what is a put option and how does it work? James, uh, put option is an option that gives the owner the right to sell the stock at a specific price. Okay, so regardless of what the stock is trading in the fair, in the market, you can sell the the stock at the price that the option tells you you can sell it at. Okay, I, I get that, but maybe maybe walk me through an example. Okay, so for example, let let's assume we'll use the name Pete. Pete owns fifty thousand shares of JCL Corporation, and he bought the shares at fifty dollars. And they're now trading for $75. So Pete wants to protect some of his $1.25 million in gains, but doesn't want to sell the stock. As Mark said earlier in his comments, he doesn't want to give up the upside. So he decides to buy a long-term put option for all 50,000 shares. And the put, for instance, expires in two years, and the strike price is $68. So that gives him the right to buy the stock at $68. And those puts are selling for a price. And let's say, for example, the selling price for this is $3.45 per share. And options contracts, as you know, covers 100 shares. So Pete, to cover all 50,000 shares, the premium would be $172,500. So that's 500 contracts times 100 shares per contract at $3.45 a share. So let's go forward 18 months later. One of JCL's major factory burns down and the stock plummets to $55. Pete can now exercise the put and sell his shares for the $68. So his shares are still worth $900,000 more than what he paid for them. Now, of course, not counting the $172,500 premium that he paid for the options. So without the puts, his $1.25 million paper profit at the time he bought the options would have shrunk to only $250,000. So, so that was a smart deal for him, turns out. Yes. 
Yeah, you know, he, he, he preserves $900,000 of his gains versus two fifty, dollars a $650,000 delta. Yeah, so if, you're, if you're, your stock company is uh, making matches in a factory somewhere, maybe you, you consider uh, <laughs> protecting that with a put option. I'm joking, of course. Yeah, well, you know, owning puts is a great way to protect downside. So you know you're going to get a minimum amount of money for the stock that you own. Right. That's the big advantage. So, right. you know, it's, it's, it's sleep at night factor, as they call it. But, it. but as Mark said earlier, there's a cost, right? You have to actually buy those, those puts. And, then, and if the stock were to continue, as opposed to your example, there was no factory fire, right? And the stock increased in price. You, you take advantage of the gain because you own the stock, but you're out the money you paid for the option, right? Correct. Okay. And if you think the stock's going to continue to increase, then you wouldn't buy the puts. But that's, we know that's not real life. Right. And that's definitely the one side of the equation, right, with the puts. And the other side of the equation are calls. So the put gives you the right to sell and a call gives you the right to buy. And one way calls can be used to diversify and hedge securities is if you actually sell the call, you write the call. And the concept there is if you sell the call, you can collect the premium. And that premium can be used to diversify into some other holdings. But what you give up is the upside, because then if you hit that strike price, or if the stock hits the strike price, you as a seller have to give that stock to the the person that bought that call. And so you lose the upside, but you do gain the premium if you wanted to do a a writing call strategy. So maybe I could just just stop you there and just ask you a couple questions, Mark. So if, if you say that selling a call to an investor, if I sell a call to an investor that gives that investor the the right to buy the stock from me at a certain price, right? That's what you Correct. said? Correct. What if I um, don't actually own the shares? Well, then that's called an uncovered call. And that can be pretty risky because you'll have to, if if the stock rises, you need to supply that stock to that call owner, and you're only going to receive, say, let's use a quick example. If the call price is at 100, and you know, if stocks move relatively normally in small increments, well, the stock goes to 101, well, you could buy the stock from 101, give it to the call holder, and, and you would get $100, and you would be out that dollar difference. But what happens, as we've seen these very volatile markets, if that stock actually doubles, you as you would have to go pay two hundred for it in the market, and then still only get a hundred for it from the call owner. So an uncovered call, if you don't own the stock, it's very risky because that stock can double, and you'd have to cover at a very very high price. Where this- I'm going to anticipate your next question, but a covered call is where you actually own the stock, and so even if you have that situation where the stock really runs up high. You already own the stock in this concentrated stock position, and you could give it uh, to the call holder without any risk to you. Yeah, you lose the upside, but there's no risk there other than giving up your upside. So that's what a covered call is. You actually own the stock combined with that short call. And so an uncovered call, I've heard of these. Is this the same as a naked option? Well, the, the naked option is the uncovered version. Yeah. And the covered is the like a covered call when you own the stock right. too. Yeah. So if I don't own the stock and, I, and it's called away, I'm going to go buy it so I can sell it to that person at the price I agreed to under the contract. And Correct. that could be expensive if the market is going up. So go back to the basics. So the strategy, if I'm selling something to somebody, they're giving me cash for selling them that contract. So that sounds like this is more of an income type generating strategy. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think that's very fair. So. 
if you own the stock and you sell a call against it, you will earn that call premium. And that'll be a relatively small percentage, usually of your total stock position, but you do collect that income and you can help diversify your holdings with that income. And as we just talked about, the, the cost to that is essentially you can give up some upside if the stock really runs on the upside, but it is nice. It's a uh, lower risk income strategy to bring uh, writing the covered calls. And then I can take that income, you know, cash and use it to invest into a diversified portfolio that will help, you know, build up uh, a portfolio around that concentrated position. So while that writing covered calls is not a protection against the downside, against the risks of the downside, it does allow me to start to build a more diversified portfolio if I've got cash from selling the call. Correct. Okay. James, if I could add, I mean, selling covered calls has become a very popular way for people to generate income. In addition to collecting the dividend, they're also collecting the call premium so they can, you know, double or even triple their income. And what they give up is the upside. But for many people, they're okay with giving up a 10, 20% upside and they just keep rewriting it. So it becomes a very common strategy to just really boost income for a lot of clients. Yeah, makes sense. So just going back, buying a put versus selling a call. And when we're selling a call, we want to be really careful that we've got the stock on hand in case it's called away by that option call holder. You've got it, James. All right. I'm square. Perfect. You know, James, a commonly used strategy by investors to help them manage the risk associated with a concentrated stock position is to combine both a put and a caller option. It's often called a stock caller. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So how does that work, Charlie? Is it as painful as it sounds? Well, let me explain it by building on my prior example. In addition to buying puts, Pete had also sold calls with an $83 strike price on his 50,000 shares of JCL Corp stock. He would have established a caller. The calls would have expired worthless when the stock dropped to $55 since he, no investor would have exercised the option to pay $83 for shares that would have a market price of $55. So Pete would have retained the premium. That income from selling the calls would also have blunted the impact of the price drop of the JCL position. Okay, that, that makes sense. So you put a floor on the downside. Yes, you've limited your upside, but you got a little bit of a premium from the selling of that call to offset the cost of, of buying the put. So I get it. And I get, I've heard the term zero cost callers, and that's where someone tries to offset the cost of buying the put with the income from selling the call, almost a direct offset. I know that there are some rules around that, which we don't have time to go into today but they try to offset them enough so that we can call them a zero cost caller. So that sounds like an interesting strategy for someone who has a concentrated position. And I know for the right client with a publicly traded security here, and I, by the way, I think it, Mark, maybe you could opine on this. I think we're talking about publicly traded securities today for the most part, aren't we? Yes, we almost assuredly in the sense of to write or buy an option on a private investment is almost impossible to do. I shouldn't say it's impossible, but close to it. So yeah, generally these would be public investments. Got it. Are there any other considerations around the use of a stock collar, Mark? Well, yes, James, there are a couple of things people want to consider. First of all, as with a covered call, the upside appreciation of the concentrated position is limited to the call's strike price. So the same thing with this collar. If that price is reached before the caller's expiration date, 
the investor would not only lose the premium paid for the option, but unless he could unwind the position by buying back the calls, and there's no guarantee that he'd be able to do so, the forced sale may result in capital gains taxes due. Got it. Secondly, be careful about closing one side of the collar while the other side of the trade remains outstanding. For example, if an option holder exercised the put and then the shares sold are later called away prior to the expiration date, he or she could find themselves with an uncovered call, referred to as a naked call, as we mentioned before. The option holder could potentially suffer a significant loss if there is a need to repurchase the shares at a higher price to fulfill the call. Got it. That's right, Mark. And guys, it's very important to make a practical point here. Many publicly traded companies do not allow their employees to hedge the company's stock. Certainly, most executives will be reluctant to to hedge their company stock due to the public nature of all company stock transactions in which they engage. Right. So, you know, we're talking about publicly traded companies here. We're talking about these strategies. But for most employees, matter of fact, I'm thinking back of organizations I've worked for, there was a general prohibition against hedging your company's stock for any number of reasons. But generally speaking, companies don't want their employees place, placing bets against the company stock. That just from an optics standpoint feels a little funny. So that's a practical point and, and not lost on us. I think that's going to do it for this round. Mark and Charlie, thank you very much for your contribution to this important topic of dealing with concentrated stock positions both today and then last month. So that was really helpful. Listeners, you can find more information about this topic on our website. It's under the insights section, planning commentary. And as always, if you would like to discuss this topic or any other topic as pertains to financial planning, please don't hesitate to reach out to us through our website, palacecapitaladvisors.com. That's P-A-L-L-A-S capitaladvisors.com. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, James. Thanks, James. Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You should consult the legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances. These materials are provided for general information and educational purposes based on publicly available information from sources believed to be reliable. We cannot assure the accuracy or completeness of these materials. The information in these materials may change at any time and without notice. The information contained herein is for informational purposes only, is not personalized investment, investment advice, and should not be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any particular security, sector, or strategy to any individual person or entity. Investment advice offered through Palace Capital Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor.